Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That film tells us more about 1967 than the, the great successes, you know, the, the things that came out that were, that were brilliant, the, the Sergeant Peppers and things like that. The amount of talent just spaffing, just sort of, the amount of brilliant people involved in it who had no idea what they were doing and the, the, the waste and the excess and the, and the chaos and the madness and, you know, the way that Peter Sellers wouldn't be in the same room as Orson Welles. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdell. I'm a writer and film critic and today I have the pleasure of talking to Mr. John Hicks who is the author of many books including William Blake versus the World, fantastic look at the romantic poet, and Love and Let Die, uh, the book that we'll, we shall be talking about today which is a cultural history entwining the Beatles and the James Bond Uh, film and book series. It's a, a fascinating, revealing book full of incredible facts that you didn't know and combinations that you you might have known, but you, you didn't ever see in this light. So it's a, a really great read. And if you haven't already read it, I'm sure you'll want to after you hear our conversation. If you enjoy the episode, please remember to like and subscribe and do all those things which help the podcast to grow. We've got off to a great 2024. Let's make 2024 the year that writers on film really breaks through 
appeal to a wider audience. If you want also, there is, if you don't have enough of hearing me talk to people, um, there is also our sister podcast, Cinema Italia, which is available now, and Connery, the speculative fiction, which I have written and Kai Ross narrates all of which can be found on platforms uh, wherever you go and get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, etc., etc. You can also follow me on Twitter at Dr. Jonty, D-R-J-O-N-T-Y. I'm also around on Instagram and the threads and uh, Blue Sky, uh, lots of different places. So you can find me uh, wherever you do your social media. Uh, but before you do any of that, enjoy the conversation. to say i'm a big fan john because i i really loved your book on william blake oh that's lovely to hear that's always pleasing that one it sent me back to blake you know it sent me to read the long books which is something i'd never oh, done before excellent and yeah i i just found them because uh, i i studied the romantics when i was at university and i i did my phd on shelley so i was yeah. i was very into the romantics and Blake was always that outsider character in more yeah. ways than one. He was the Absolutely. one guy who's not connected really to anybody else. You know, you mm. can you can get to Wordsworth via Shelley or Byron or Keats or you know, but and so I'd kind of neglected him, I think. And when I was mm. reading your book was a really good a good excuse to go back to him and, and reconsider. It's, it's kind of why the book exists. And mm. it was just that sense that people needed an excuse to to go to Blake, like they, a lot of people thought, well, I like Blake, but I'm not allowed, mm. or like there's something stopping me, or um, people, I won't, I won't understand it, and people will be cross at me, or there's this sense there's gatekeepers around it. There's a sense that there's no um, obvious way in, you know, mm. beyond the songs of innocence and things, and the, the the simpler sort of stuff like that. And so the whole point of the existence of the book is for people to go. Oh no, I am allowed. I am allowed in to Blake. I can just sort of go there. So every time I, I hear you say things like that, I'm like, oh thank God I wrote that book because that's another person who's got Blake in their lives. And that's all that's always a good, you know, that's just more positive world the more people have Blake in their lives. Absolutely. Because I think the argument that you make is one which is related to this book, which one love and let die, which is kind of that there is this British culture and British heritage, mm. which is which is steeped in popular culture, yeah, and it's and it's ever present. But at the same time, the continuity and the 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 interweaving isn't isn't as readily apparent as you would think. Yeah, I mean, if you go, I mean, one thing that really struck me was if you go to Waterstones or a bookshop and you look at the history set shelves, and you know that's. That's our story. Right? That's right. that's how we came to be us. That's our history. But they're all books about power. They're books about maybe military power or royal power or you know economic power or something like that. Uh, it's like power is the medium in which we explain ourselves and we tell our story. Power means nothing to most people. We don't. Most we don't have power. It's it's, it's not our lives. It's a, um, there, there's another way of looking at our ourselves, and that's that's imagination, which obviously comes a lot through through Blake. And when you see all these books about you know wars and you know the 
East India Company and and all these great sort of um, powerful sort of things. You know, a song, you know, a film. These can seem very trivial and very, very small. And it's like the imagination. It's nothing compared to power. But it, it really is. It's just different. It just acts differently. I see them as like fire and water, you know. Mm. They're completely different. And yet, you know, a forest fire will do as much damage as a tsunami. You know, they mm. act on different scales, but they do shape us and they do form. And so if you have a sense of your history that's just power and not imagination, it doesn't describe how you came to be you. Because that's a fundamental part of ourselves, of uh, you know how we see the world. Uh, it's, it sort of shapes our values, which shapes our actions, which creates history in that in that sort of way. So yeah, the, the the story of us, I think, does need to to include the imagination, and a lot of that imagination um, is popular. Mm. You know, it's the sort of thing that um, can be overlooked by cultural elites as trivial or unimportant. Um, and it ain't. It just really isn't. And it seems—it seems so timely as well because, you know, I was thinking about this recently. The whole idea of the culture war was a sort of laughable thing, and you know, mm. and, and but the American right had a very um, systematic program where they decided: look, the left always win the universities; they always win the culture wars, so to speak. Yeah. And we're going to stop this. We're going to put ourselves into those. Uh, decision-making processes. We're going to put ourselves in the BBC. We're going to put, uh, and we're going to stop Absolutely. this from happening. And and so, actually, while we scoffed at the from the left, from maybe a, a position of power, um, at the idea that the right would ever take over the culture wars, I've just watched Battle of Algiers, and you know, mm. Mature, the Colonel, says, "Why is the Sartre always on their side?" You know, yes. <laughs> and um, why don't we have any Sartres? Um, and the right seems to have just taken that to heart. And I think the left have, have lo we've lost our Sartres. We've lost our narrative. We've lost mm. our, um, we've lost yeah. some of that power. We we have uh, sure absolutely. I'm I'm just I'm I'm deep in a book about Doctor Who at the moment, so I'm very aware of the way mm. that Russell T Davis is just sort of shamelessly aiming that franchise um, at the at the at the culture wars mm. uh, to the extent that um, I don't know. I I get the impression he just is at a stage of life where he's. I mean, he's he'd lived. Uh, he his his husband died and he nursed his husband uh, through their final years. So and he's been through that. So he's afraid of nothing. Mm. Nothing scares him now. Mm. So the inclusion of um, trans characters in particular, or, you know, casting a Rwandan immigrants as the doctor, all these things that he's doing, he's doing them shamelessly. And it, understanding that the right will um, flare up in anger, but also look ridiculous at the same time. Mm. You know, the, mm. the, um, the, the recent specials, uh, Yasmin Finney was in it as a character called Rose Temple. And, you know, the BBC got about 114 complaints that there was a, a, a trans woman cast on television uh, and shown in a loving, supporting family, right? Uh, and he knows full well that seeing a trans woman in a loving, supporting family is new. You don't get that on TV. It changes things when you see that. It makes things, people get it in a way. And 
those 114 complaints, just nothing. That's mm. just nothing compared to the millions of people seeing that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a bit of a battleground at times, isn't it? James mm. Bond is, is definitely an interesting character to talk about in that and that sort of field. Absolutely. I mean, the first thing that sort of staggered me in the book, and and this and this book is full. I mean, I know I've, I've watched Bond. I've read all the Bond novels um, twice. I read them as a kid, and then I sort of had a nostalgic. Oh, I want to read them again, and read them as an adult. To, do, to... Do, do you have a favourite, John? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think. Uh, huh. I mean, I think the ones which are sort of closer to the films I loved when I was a kid. Yeah. I think On Her Majesty's Secret Service stands out as a genuinely good novel and and a genuinely good film. Um, So, yeah, I think those, those, you know, Goldfinger and and On Her Majesty's Secret Service would be the ones, but, but they kind of bleed into each other much more readily than some of the others like you know i remember mm. reading moonraker and thinking where are the spaceships what do you mean <laughs> they don't leave the earth you know they just stay in kent yeah and there's a yeah. really long car chase and if there's anything that you can't do in a novel it's kind of a car chase yeah it's like, absolutely i think it was on watling street as well on the yeah. too um i think that's one of my favorites though weirdly I, I believe i'm wrong in this and the efficient bond of fishing articles will tell me i'm wrong to like to really like the novel of, of moonraker but there's there's something um uh i don't know it was before the the um globe trotting became a key sort of part of it. It was a very early sort of novel and um, uh, it's yeah, it's just a really f- fun, exciting, you know, read. It yeah, sort of said I, a lot about Britain in, that, in the late 1950s. I, I've just received the, uh, a copy. Of, I'm, I'm slowly collecting the pan, the ones with the big James Bond, which I think is the late 60s oh, uh, yeah, pan yeah. on the cover. Because uh, those were the ones I read as kid, as a kid. I remember going to a secondhand bookshop when I was a kid and just buying them all for like twenty p each, hmm. and then obviously a lot losing them and now wanting to get them back. Um, and I've just re- received Moonraker today through the post, so I, uh-huh. um, that's going to be that's going to be poured over at some point. Um, but the fact that sort of begins your book, and it's one of the many facts which is which. Yeah, is that Sean Connery's Doctor No comes out the same week as the first Beatles? Same day. Same day. It's the same afternoon. I mean, how the it's a hell? Friday afternoon in October, and suddenly Beatles records and James Bond films exist in a way they didn't like the Thursday before, the day before. Well, that's worthy of the Virginia Woolf sort of idea of you know sometime on Thursday afternoon in 1917, modernism was born. You know, <laughs> yes, it's it's, it uh, it's exactly that. <laughs> sea change it is i mean and it's i mean politically you're looking at that period after the Suez crisis um when even you know the most uh pro-establishment um reactionary figure had to admit that britain was no longer a global power uh in the way that we had been for centuries we for, for, for centuries we'd understood understood ourselves in terms of you know uh, Britannia rules the waves you know the sun never sets on the British Empire that's who we were and then we weren't that and that raises the question of well if we're not that then like who are we 
you know, we need Britain sort of needed an answer about who are we. So I can so I can understand the way that the Beatles and the James Bond films, which in very different ways answered that question in very different answers. Um being so successful over here really sort of hitting a nerve. What's interesting is that the rest of the world went crazy for them as well. So it can't just be that, you know, there, there must be something more there. Um, and I just, I just, I'm endlessly fascinated by the way that neither of those phenomena make any sense in comparison, like to their peers, you know, that the idea that you could make an action movie starring one action hero and then go on and make you know 26 sequels over you know 60 years and everyone will be successful and everyone will make money it's ludicrous mm. right every film producer would be doing that if it was any way possible to do that it's not possible it can't but well, the fact that james bond exists you'd be laughing at me for even suggesting it you know, mm. and, yet it, and yet it does. It just uh, the, the normal rules don't apply to those films. And, and the same with the Beatles, you know, the idea that four lads could sort of come together and um, produce a body of work of that, uh, well, quality, but also influence and, and, and sort of change the way we, we um, Britain or British people sort of viewed themselves, um, leaving the world a different place afterwards than it was before, you know. The idea that a band can expect to be bigger than the Beatles, right? It's a mm. joke. And that mm. is never going to happen, you know. So they're both weird, weird anomalies. Um, and the fact that they both appeared on the same afternoon, <laughs> I can't help but see them as twins. You know, these sort of competing, um, you know, it's, obviously it's love and death. You know, it's Eros and Thanatos. It's Mars and Venus. Um it's these these uh, sort of opposing parts in our and our psyche sort of fighting with each other as we try to sort of work out the modern version of ourselves. You know, I just I just couldn't resist. Once I realised that date tied them both together, you know, I just thought, oh, this is this is this is a fascinating one. And you know, I've always wanted to write about the Beatles, but you just there's a lot of books about them. There's over two thousand books about the Beatles, uh, and to find a way that you can just put them in a perspective, a slight shift of perspective, where you start seeing new things about them, and you start to understand them on a deeper level. It's just a joy to be able to write something like that. And I mean, the the, the the sense I had as I went through the book is, and the book is so brilliantly structured because you sort of, it's almost like a series of these mini essays and you are going forward, but there's also a sense that each each essay is like a capsule in itself. And I kept expecting you to sort of, there's a point where you're going to run out of connections, but they just continue <laughs> to proliferate. They just continue to go on as you yeah. go through. I mean, right up until the present day, you know, it's just constant. The... I, I... Yeah, it's because um, their cultural footprints were so big, they're going to overlap and they're going to mm. sort of continually overlap. But when you when you get things like, I mean, I talk about the importance of the Bond girl strawberry fields as, as the moment where the, the rule that, um, you know, if James Bond sleeps with a woman, they die. This is a very, very toxic sort of problematic part of the, the character. Uh, that sort of changes with strawberry fields. And it would be, a, anyway, it would be a Beatles theme bit. Bond girl in this particular book it was just it was just it was just too perfect it was just and I loved I loved the way that out of everybody everyone talked about it in this book it's Ringo who ends up married to the Bond girl yes it's just, it's just lovely isn't it everyone 
knows that that's right. Yeah, yeah. And Christopher Lee is on the cover of the Wings album <laughs> at the time that he's Scaramanga. Yeah, and that and that's just gave me just. Um, and it's John, it was an excuse. I basically just wanted to write about Christopher Lee, and I have done for some time. <laughs> and I thought that's enough of an excuse to just do a few thousand words on on Christopher Lee, and and uh, nobody's complained. <laughs> I just randomly chucked in a Christopher Lee chapter uh, based on that slightly flimsy uh, reasoning. But you know, when you have a life as exciting as that, no one's going to mind a chapter like that sneaking in a book. But I mean, that that whole—I mean, it's a James Bond. That- concept as well that there's this web that's going across the world of relationships that are hidden and you're bringing them to light so mm-hmm. so in that sense um that the 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 format of your book is is perfectly in accordance with the bond universe you know, <laughs> little lights are sort of yeah yeah you see, you can see a map on a, on a big screen as MI5 or something <laughs> exactly, like that. Exactly, yes. them all up. Yeah, and uh, there was so many, um, I mean, I love the biograph- biographical portraits that you give of Sean Connery, you give of Ian Fleming, you give of all these characters who 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 really are characters. I mean, the fact that yeah. Sean Connery punches out John, what is it, Johnny Stompinato? Yes. I mean, just, just given his name, you know that that's brave. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know him from the James Elroy novels, and uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> he regularly turns up killing people and you know being brutal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, all those lives were fascinating. But and the the thing that um, again, one of those coincidences that seems to be a bit too much of a coincidence is the way that every single person in the book with the exception of the two Georges, George Harrison and uh, George Martin, uh, did not come from a stable nuclear family where they were raised by their two biological parents. Mm. Um, and obviously we know about John Lennon and Paul McCartney using their mothers and things like that, but it's, it goes much, much further than that. It's like, you know, it's like Alan Klein being raised in an orphanage. It's like Yoko not seeing her father till she was three. It's like Linda McCartney's uh, parents dying in a, a, a plane crash when she was a teenager. Uh, and a lot of it was due to the war, you know, with, with mm. Pete Best and his family. And um, there was a lot of, um, a, a, a lot of um, death as as normal in the lives of all these sort of people. And it's, it was one of those coincidences that started to feel a bit odd the more I once I noticed it and I started looking in and and seeing everybody's backstories. Um I, you know, there did seem to be uh these phenomenally um talented and creative and troubled people um coming out of the sort of fire of this this global world war. Um, did seem to be significant in shaping people, you know, generations later. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I don't know. What... I, I, I no. had a no, no, it's fine. I had a friend called um, a friend uh, Patty who she she comes from a generation, uh, probably two generations older than me, mm. and she said that um, you know people from who lived through the war, they just didn't. It's a, what you, it goes back to what you were saying about Russell T Davis. They didn't they were brave because not Mm. brave because they were physically courageous, but because they sort of seen it. So they, they were like, they knew what was little. They knew, 
they knew the stuff they didn't have to worry about. Yeah. And yet the Beatles are sort of that great quote that you uh, take from Hard Day's Night of, you know, I, I want, I, fought in the war for the likes of you. I bet you wish you'd lost. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, which was... Uh... <laughs> yeah, God, it's so funny, that film. I love that film. But the fact that it came out at the same time as Goldfinger. Yeah. And, yeah. The, and the weird little crossovers between them, like uh, Shirley Easton is the, on the painted gold on the poster of Goldfinger and she's placed a masseuse and then there she is um, and the gambling club that uh, um, uh, Wilfred Bramble playing Paul's pretend Irish granddad sort of goes into and that's the same club that you first meet James Bond in in Doctor No the Le Cirque gambling rooms and the ambassadors or something like that the way that they cross over like this is, is really fascinating the guy um, who fought in the war for you lot is the guy who's briefing James Bond about gold smuggling you know and the way that character's treated and it's in my head it's the same character yeah, yeah, he looks yeah. the same. He's dressed the same, but he's probably on his way to that meeting. <laughs> yeah, he probably he probably is where he will be respected. You know, he'll be treated with deference. Uh, whereas on the train with the oiks, you know, he's he's a figure of fun, and it's that notion of the the bowler hat. You know, a, a bowler hatted figure. The country's asking, should that figure be respected like automatically? Or are they ridiculous? And in in Goldfinger, the bowler hat's a weapon. You know, odd jobs got. You'll take your head off with this by throwing this bowler hat at you. And say, the bowler hat is a thing to be feared. But at the same time, out comes a hard day's night, and a bowler hat's just hilarious. You know, the pompousness of it and stuff like that. So you can sort of see the the um, uh, the, the culture wars then sort of playing out in these sort of things. And culture wars are always ridiculous looking in hindsight because they're not really about what they're about you know there's so much about hair length on men in in that story and it was such a such a um uh issue that um lazenby george lazenby um wasn't allowed to attend the premiere of his bond film because he'd grown his hair sort of shoulder length sort of he looked a bit like george best you know he, he looked great but at the time because of the culture war and because of the way Cubby Broccoli, you know, was was of the older generation and stuff like that, he wouldn't have James Bond being associated with these long hairs. So he was banned from sort of coming from it. And, you know, decades later, it looks stupid, but it's it's kind of more about roles of masculinity and, and deeper questions like that, which were, which were changing and which do sort of hint at uh, significant shifts occurring within our culture. I mean, you managed to bring out that real sense of how, at the time, it, it, it's how different the Beatles are in the sense that we're looking back, you bring up a really good point of Peter Jackson's documentary, that watching it now, you see the Beatles as, oh, they're just ordinary. They're just like you and me. And it's only when you go outside and see the people waiting, you know, what what's going on up, the, up there on the roof, that suddenly yeah. you get all these people who look like they're from the 1950s and 40s. And it, it's, it's, you think, my God, it, it does look like the Beatles have come from outer space. Absolutely. In the world of, um, you know, headscarves and again, bowler hats and those clipped accents and the people you meet outside. Um, it feels like the Beatles are modern humans who had got trapped in the past and was having to change culture enough for us to catch up with them. 
Yeah, that's that is what it feels like. Yeah, I mean, the Beatles just get bigger the further we get away from them. You know, it was it wasn't that long ago that people would talk about the Beatles and the Stones as if they were, you know, in some way comparable or unequal sort of. Oh, there was a, a House of Love song, the Beatles and the Stones. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, absolutely. You don't hear that now. No disrespect to the Stones, but when people talk about Beatles, it's usually the Beatles and Shakespeare, and those are the things that sort of define, you know, English and British uh, culture. Um, it's the relationships between those four men that are just so fascinating that even if the music hadn't been as as varied and, and, and as brilliant as it was, they would still be fascinating. But put everything together, put the quality of their, their, their work, the brilliance of their music together with those four relationships... And it, and it does seem to have been a shift in the way that we that is looked at now. You know, in the sort of 80s and the 90s, music journalists, they sort of wrote about them in terms of competition. It was like, well, who's best? It's John Lennon's best. Paul McCartney's not as good as John Lennon. That was the, the, the general thing. But we're starting to see female writers write about the Beatles at last, slowly. It's still, still a huge void there. But there's been a shift into looking at them as essentially a love story, as essentially as, as the relationships between them. And that's just opened up so much more and given us so much more insight than this very sort of simple sort of competition-based analysis of them. Um, so, yeah, even though decades and decades have gone, we're still seeing them fresh and seeing them new and finding new ways to sort of think about them. And it's, um, it's, it is kind of puts them in the world of myth, which is, mm. is constantly um rewarding in, in that every culture looks at it changes it comes up with something completely different uh, and still finds it of value you know but it is fascinating um to 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 see how the beatles are seen change as we get further and further away from them and as we come through the the making films i mean one question i had when i was well actually i'll i'll, I'll leave that to a little bit later but you describe help as a as basically a spoof bond film uh, with the and and then um and then casino royale is like a spoof bond film via the beatles you know uh, talking about the david niven uh yeah the 1967 casino royale yeah oh that's just i mean i I mean, there must be somewhere shelves and shelves um, of the footage that they 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 shot so much stuff that what the mess that the final film became is just a fraction of all this stuff. We want and Peter I, Jackson to put it back together, yes, don't you? Or, you know, yeah, it's it's. I think that that film tells us more about 1967. The, the the great successes, you know, the, the things that came out that worked, that were brilliant, the, the Sergeant Peppers and things like that. That the amount of talent just just spaffing, just sort of the amount of brilliant people involved in it who had no idea what they were doing and the the, the waste and the excess and the and the chaos and the madness and you know the way that um, Peter Sellers wouldn't be in the same room as Orson oh, Welles. And, uh, the Roger Lewis book that you quote is one of the best books I've ever read about a filmmaker. Uh, the Life and Death of Peter Sellers is just a, a, a work of genius. Absolutely. 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 Yeah, I do think Peter Sellers is, um, is the sort of figure that we need to look at again mm. because um, it's that, that genius to madness trajectory. Mm. It was very, very quick. 
Yeah, it took like five minutes. <laughs> yeah, it did. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I think there's a Doctor Strangelove play with, um, is it uh, Amanda Iannucci is doing Doctor Strangelove and things like that. So maybe you'll be in the air a little bit more. But yeah, I think I think uh, Peter Sellers is one of those endlessly, endlessly fascinating characters. Mm-hmm. And uh, what the question I wanted to ask in a way was, I don't know why this had never occurred to me before, but all the filmmaking that they do, the Beatles, they seem to tend to keep it around a sort of British-based film industry. And I always wondered why they... There was never a sense that the Beatles went to Hollywood. No, that's you know, true. They, they yeah. didn't do like the Elvis thing of let's just go and see if we can find a vehicle or what can Hollywood do for us. And I just wonder if that was because they were... You know, they they couldn't separate off and and like go and do single things. They they had to do it all together. Yeah, I mean it's I mean it started off because you know Brian Epstein just didn't have contacts over there, but he he was mm. in London and so could get the first film going and and uh, and the third. But by the time they were doing Magical Mystery Tour, I don't think they'd have been interested in going to Hollywood in in the slightest. You know, they were mm. just trying to sort of do it themselves and do a sort of weird, arty, uh, psychedelic experiment you know it just so happened that because they were Beatles it became the big Boxing Day <laughs> BBC broadcast in, in black and white where it you know, scared the bejesus out of the, <laughs> the population watching it yeah I can't imagine what a, a big sort of Hollywood Beatles film would be I mean there was they, a rat attack sort of when they attempted to remake um, Yellow Submarine was it maybe 15 years ago in CG? Um, and they abandoned it, but they leaked, a few images were leaked and they were just horrifying. You know, it was just awful. It was just terrible, terrible sort of stuff. I'm sure at some point there will be a Yellow Submarine series or remake or, or you know, something on Disney Plus or... The Beatles like universe. That. The Beatles universe. Because essentially, you know, you see things like you know, the ABBA, um, tour the, the virtual sort of sort of people and uh, and you think oh, I wonder if the Beatles were doing in with this sort of technology and they are very good at Apple this is they are very good at not doing anything but just the right thing you know not going out there but basically we all want to go to Pepperland and the that's not going to go away and at some point there will be some virtual live sort of sort of thing uh, i hope anyway i hope so um with all the latest you know um hologram and technology and all that sort of stuff uh, if you hear that that's my cat attempting to destroy the room that's okay <laughs> that's, that's 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 just normal just just sort of ignore that what's your cat's name his name is dennis that's I not know. not Bond or or Beatles based. Yeah, it, was, it was my daughter when she was ten. Was very keen uh, on the be the Beano. Uh, cat. She gets to name it. Fair cat enough. Is therefore, called Dennis. It's, it's it's not on me. <laughs> right. Fair enough. Dennis O'Brien is the only the only link I could. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so we come to the end of the Beatles, and we come to sort of a change in in a, a turbulent period as well for the Bond franchise, uh, uh, but, you know, roughly the same period. And and in a way, the end of the Beatles isn't the end of the Beatles because obviously the the, the, the continuity, it goes on today, you know, get yeah. back, get back being a, a prime example of a, a resurgent in, in interest, resurgence in interest. A new single was number one this, very, this past 12 months. 
Exactly. The Rolling Stones must be so pissed off. They did a whole <laughs> album. They they did a live tour, and the Beatles yeah. still pip them. They still can't. They still can't shake it. The, even the, even the, half dead, they're still winning. There's that that great story of Paul McCartney going on to a Rolling Stones album launch, uh, where they were playing the new album, and all the great and good of swing in London was there. And he just, he's, oh, it's great, yeah. He just goes to the, I just, I just brought this this acetate. This like it was the, it just recorded Hey Jude, yeah. And they just, just, just play this, this latest thing, and they. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I put this thing on the room just felt silent. And everyone was just sort of listening to it. And then they weren't, you know, they weren't expecting the song to sort of then go on to a seven minute sort of single. And I'd never heard, but it was like something I'd never heard before. And it's just like, oh, Paul, it was their launch party for God's sake. Yeah. <laughs> wacky, wacky macker and he's yeah. uh, two bombs. Just, <laughs> just, just a sort of, just one little piece of seven inch vinyl, just to sort of. <laughs> ruin everything just for... to ruin everything for them yeah oh wow wow i mean the um so we're getting into this transition and people like george lazenby are sort of going oh okay the the, the it's changing the mm. you know the 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 uh bond is out of favor it's not going to last and yeah. and you get uh the um and, and obviously with the beatles breaking up that, that feels like there's an end of an era mm. but even with the 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 afterlives of the Beatles, and I'm always I'm always surprised at how young the Beatles are when they break up. I know, I you know, know, because that's a long time to be an ex-Beatle. Yeah, very yeah. true. Very, you know, in that in that George Lazenby film you mentioned, you know, that was the start of the still ongoing tradition in which every time a Bond film comes out, a journalist will write an article saying, yeah, you should stop it with these Bond films now, lads. Uh, they're a little bit, you know, it's gone, you know, mm. it's out of date. And uh, it happened in the late 60s and they happened throughout the 70s and those articles, they happened throughout the 80s and the 90s and the noughts and said, and up to the latest No Time to Die, there's always the, it's time to stop this now, article sort of coming. Yeah. Um, and it would have made sense in 67. You know, it was you know, an establishment assassin was not, did not fit into the make love, not war uh, culture. And the reason George Lazenbury didn't sign on for any more, despite being offered an awful lot of money, was because he thought it was dead. It was over, you know. 
Uh, and the, the, the notion to him that it, it wouldn't die and that the Beatles would be over in like a year or so would have just floored him, I think. It mm. just it seemed to be completely and completely the opposite. Um, but the way that, well, as, as I say this, I, you know, I'm I'm conscious that when I wrote the book, the idea that now in 2024 there wouldn't have been another Bond film, there wouldn't it, the new Bond wouldn't have been cast, it wouldn't have been on the next phase and stuff like that. I wouldn't have believed it at all. You know, they mm. finished the last one in uh, 2019, five years ago. Mm, mm. And they just seem stuck. They just seem not to know what to do, mm. how to reintroduce this character um, to a twenty twenties audience because they've got to get a young audience back on, mm. you know. Otherwise, it will just be uh, a, a, an aging and dwindling, you know, audience sort of following this. And in say in the mid nineties, when Piers Brosnan came out. They were able to huck it to the, the zeitgeist, that Brit poppy, um, celebratory, um, you know, have a good time, don't think of the consequences, laddie sort of retro uh, vibe very easily. And things like the Nintendo 64 GoldenEye game, mm. it all fitted together, you know, great. Uh, and it really reinvigorated and it kept it going for, you know, another gen generation X, which is what what I am. You know, we, we we just got totally on board at that point and we've been watching them ever since. But um real generation um Z for the young people, you know, Bond is essentially everything they're against. Mm. You know, he's he's the enemy, you know, quite how they're gonna reinvent it for now. Uh, will be fascinating, will be fascinating to see. And the longer they sort of go without, I mean, to hear them talking, they haven't really started yet. They haven't really mm. got it. It's, it's like they just don't seem to be able to see how, how to do it. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm starting to re um, reassess in the book. I just think people look the look, just look at the history. The thing goes on, it goes yeah. on. Yeah, it all these sort of things. It goes on. It does speak to something inside us. It does speak to, uh, you know, our need for a, a a hero. There is something about an idealized sort of masculine presence that changes throughout culture. But as long as it hits that, it will sort of go on. Um, but yeah, where is it though? Where is it, John? I can't see it. It's that th that real trick of of having to change and in changing even a revolutionary way, but at the same time maintain a certain consistency and not. Yeah. Um, that I can imagine is nerve-wracking to... And the other thing they have to look out for is in 2030 in America, in 2035 in, in Britain, the copyright's up. So oh, yeah. if they don't have anything sort of well-established in the next few years, yeah. there's nothing stopping any other studio just stepping in and going, we're going to release our own Bond series. And it's got, you know, everything. Mm. Uh, you know, Money Penny, um uh, Felix Leiter, you know, all all the all the, the extra characters, the you know, M, they're all part of the copyright. It all becomes clear. The only thing that Eon have got is um that uh, gun barrel opening and right. the music. Right. Um both of which are established within the first minute of the very first film on fifth of October nineteen sixty two. Um and both of which together I think may be enough to to make you think it's not really Bond if it doesn't have have that music and it doesn't have that that sort of thing. I mean, you know full well that the moment, the day the copyright ends, 
There's going to be a, a, a novel which is a reimagining of Casino Royale told from Vesper Lynn's perspective, mm. like on bookshelves. You know, it, it'll be written and waiting. You know it. Will, it, it that's will that's be. a literary fiction version. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and there will be a lot... People will be doing a lot of things with it. So they kind of, you know, do need to re-establish the film's... Um, for this audience, but they're not going to have the budgets that they've had, the way that the box office has been. They aren't going to be get, getting away with spending $300 million on, mm. on a film or anything like that, mm. which may be part of the problem. I don't know. Um, I mean, they, be... they, it would be interesting to see. I mean, they, they always have this thing of occasionally, you know, getting very excessive and then and then pulling back and stripping yeah. down and doing a For Your Eyes Only after yeah. Moonraker and... You know, there's there's always you know whenever you watch the additional contents uh, on the DVDs, they're always saying yes for this one. We wanted to go back to the books. We wanted to go back yes. to the character. And it's like really for your eyes only. He has a parrot that talks to <laughs> Margaret Thatcher. I don't remember that being in the short story. Um, <laughs> you know, are you sure you're going back to the character? I mean, yeah, he kicks a guy off a cliff, but that's about it. You know, when they when they say that, they mean uh, oh. We just took a surname from like a character in a short story, and we gave it to a completely different person. All yeah. this go, going back to character—they're a long way from the character now. Yeah, from the character yeah. in the books. I mean, Roger Moore was a long way from the character in the books. You know, well, even Sean Connery. Even Sean. I mean, yeah, I, lo I love that bit that I never knew this. That that you know, Ian Fleming writes in a Scottish. The, the idea that he mm. went to a Scottish school fets as yeah. a, you know, because Sean Connery had been cast. So it was yeah. like, oh, okay, I'll do that retroactively. I'll put in this. Uh, in, this... The, in the in the final book, Sean Connery was not how Ian Fleming viewed James Bond at all. You know, he was quite against it. It's just when he saw how successful it was being, he wasn't daft, you know, he sort of, but I, I, what gets me is the, this notion that uh, he went to Fetz and that Sean Connery did know Fetz because mm. he used to deliver milk there. Was the milk boy? Yeah, I mean that's <laughs> crazy. That's crazy, and I I think it's so wonderful to um, have in this age of PR. I interview a, a lot of uh, uh, people, and it's always through a PR, often with a PR in the room, mm. and um, and. You have these people like Connery who are just so unfiltered. So that's yeah. like, what what do you think of Ian Fleming? Oh, he was a terrible snob. You know, what yeah. do you think? What do you think of Cubby Broccoli? Oh, I hate that man. He's just like, <laughs> he, he was so you know, he he did these publicity tours, uh, basically denigrating the thing that he was supposed to be publicizing. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's kind of kind of refreshing that level of you honesty. You get Christopher Eccleston has it a little bit. Mm. But um, there was this great interview where he was talking about our friends in the North. And he was like, oh, Gina McKee, she was superb. And, you know, Daniel Craig, I was, it's been brilliant watching his, I could, I could tell the talent that he had and all this sort of stuff. And it was, was it Mark Strong? He goes, didn't like him. But <laughs> 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 his performance was good. <laughs> he said a similar thing about, I think it was Danny Boyle uh, when he did Shadow Grave. He said mm. uh, that uh, Danny Boyle, uh, got us to live in a flat 
for like a month while we were rehearsing and preparing the film. And he said, that was just bullshit. I, I'm an actor. I don't need to live in a flat. I don't yeah. need to, I don't need to, I've lived with people I don't like. I don't need to do this. <laughs> you know, I, it's not a strange experience. It's not exotic as an experience. Yeah. Where yeah. where do you think Bond is going to go? Where where what's your well? I think it, I think it needs to be fun again. I think you know he is this sort of idealized uh, fantasy of what it is to be male, and I I think at some point we're going to have to allow a sense of fun into that again. You know, rather than the the um, uh, the angst ridden sort of side that we've we've seen recently i also wonder whether the thing to question is not it's not so much his attitude to women and stuff which they've uh, they've addressed quite well and has, has changed to the extent that when the last film came out um the word woke wasn't enough for the daily mail to describe no time to die and they coined the the word super woke for it you know right it's like, right it's like right. when a james bond film is is like not you know we've, we've, we're definitely a long way from fleming at that sort of point but the, the issue is the established the idea that the the british crown has the right to go around the world and kill anyone that they like and that i don't think people are looking at you know the when mm. the when say Putin sends assassins to Britain to in the Salisbury poisonings and, and things like that. We're outraged, you know, the, the, the notion that a state can have a, um, uh, an assassin department where they have a license to kill, they have the right to kill anyone. And I, I don't think that holds, I think that needs looking at that's <laughs> no, that's... and the rest, the rest of the, you can imagine how the rest of the security services, would see this 007 division they would mm. be dark you know it wouldn't be talked about it would be you know you wouldn't go for a drink with those guys you know be um i do wonder if they will you know was, examine that aspect of the character was that why jason bourne ultimately didn't have legs was because his his superhero super spy department was essentially black ops and he had to mm. rebel against it in order so so you know there's only so long he can rebel against it before yeah. he's done it and there's no bureaucracy to send him on a new mission every every film yeah. you know it becomes just when does he bring it down and what happens afterwards um with bond he he never attempt i mean you know there's been a couple of films where he's semi-retired or given up the license to kill or whatever mm. but Goes rogue yeah but he's but he always comes back to the fold and it's always yeah. very avuncular you know you have this idea of q being this sort of avuncular guy he's, he's got blood on his hands that man he's always <laughs> giving he's always giving things to bond that you know in the final act will blow up you know, uh, a yeah. black a black person, or he, he's you know. an arms dealer. He creates weapons, and exactly. we, we just think of him as this lovely guy. You know, um, yeah, you know, it's very noticeable that nobody, you know, fantasizes about being Jason Bourne. Mm. You know, mm. there's there there is something different about, and the fact that Fleming had been in naval intelligence and they'd sort of come out the war. All those things I was talking about there made total sense at that point. 
course you'd have you know an assassin department and uh, of course they would have you know pens that fire poison tip darts and and things like that because in the war these have been necessary this is this is part of natural stagecraft you need these people you know um yeah there's only i don't know there's only so every time someone goes rogue in a film my sort of heart drops these days because i've just seen that story so mm. often but it is a reaction that well they're supposed to be the hero they work for the bad people doing bad things so therefore they have to rebel against that and it's um it is a story we're a bit sick of, I think. Yeah, I mean, Mission Impossible has been running mm. that story for the last few films, and it, yeah. it just like I've lost, I've I've lost track. Which which organization are you working for? Why are you doing this? What, what is at stake? I can't remember the last time he didn't go rogue. Yeah, in yeah. The Mission Impossible films. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's like it's like Spock having an emotion. It's sort of like he's <laughs> <laughs> the most emotional guy on the Enterprise. He's always. <laughs> You cold-hearted Vulcan, you're crying again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Deep down in, in the heart of the James Bond character, there is this sense of um, it's wish fulfillment because he can do whatever he likes. Yeah. You know, and that's the core of it. That's the sort of imagine if the, the rules didn't really apply to you, but you were still a good guy. Mm, yeah, but mm. you were still a good guy and you were working towards the greater good. Um, I, there's, there's that, I think, will have an eternal appeal. Um, but shaping it for now is going to be fascinating how to go about it. There was, I, mean, I mean, there was, there was talk of... Um, uh, there's a lot of rumours. Mm. Suddenly, this Christopher Nolan or you know whichever director is linked to it, and they're not, or this character, and they're not. Many an agent has, has slipped out a, a, a rumour to a friend in the press to to raise the profile of their their client, and you can't really take um, them. You know, we know what though we know what that game is. But sure. there was there was talk of the next film having bonded two stages of his lives with two actors, a young one and an older one. Which I thought was interesting. Mm, mm. So uh, that that suggests that they they are sort of trying to come up with something a little different, a little bit different that we haven't quite seen before. Um, and I, you know, I have no idea whether that would work or or the extent that it focuses too much on the character because um, actors want to focus on the character, you know. Um, Daniel Craig wanted his heroic deaths and all these sort of things. But Bond is a little bit like a video games avatar and that they're distinctive enough so you recognize them immediately, but they're, they're slightly bland enough that you identify with them. Really, mm. you're being Bond in these things, really. Uh, it's it's You can project yourself onto them because their um, motivations are quite, simple and clear mm. and they're your motivations as well you don't want that guy to destroy the world so you know that the right thing to do is to climb out of that window and sort of leap onto that crane and, and all those sort of things uh there's a slight video games aspect to the character which is not the sort of thing that actors are pushing for probably mm. not the sort of thing the directors are pushing for but it is vital um to to the appeal of of those things 
Um, so yeah, we will see. We will. We should know by now. I mean, God's yeah. sake, 2024. Yeah, I mean, it, it does strike me that there's a sort of element that they pick a journeyman for the director, and that's why Danny Boyle didn't work, and why Christopher yeah. Nolan, I think, wouldn't necessarily be. You know, and someone yes. like Sam Mendes is kind of perfect because I don't think he's really that good a director, and he's, <laughs> you know, he, he can do. He's he, he that that's, you know, a perfect thing for him to do. Um, I think the the same thing is sort of true of the actor that it's got to be someone who's kind of previously unknown, so that yeah. you're you're always going, oh right, he has, I've seen him on television, but I don't know if he's <laughs> you know that sort of. Um, I I the one thing that is different to Jason Bourne and to the Mission Impossible is is I think the baddie. I think the baddie is the thing that really defines the baddie has all the personality, yeah. and and. And is is like the super ego of the film, yeah. so so it, I mean you would be really hard put to to name who is the baddie in a Jason Bourne film. You know, is it Brian Cox or is it the guy Chris Cooper? You know, it's sure. one of those guys, but it could sure. easily be anybody else. You know, yeah, um, it could be Tom Wilkinson, it could be anyone. Yeah, but with uh, even a bad baddie like uh, no time to die you know mm. you remember it's the guy who won the oscar for bohemian rhapsody yes absolutely you know, absolutely you, you don't you you know who's in that position it comes up to mind immediately when you think of the films yeah. you know you think of yeah. Cena royale you go oh, that was Mills mickinson you know you yeah. think of uh the, the tomorrow never dies it was jonathan price you know they that they, they're probably the most prominent part of the film in your memory yeah you know the man with the golden gun that's christopher lee that's scaramanga and so it was a real shame that the way they messed up the blofeld in the well in my my opinion oh the chris waltz the, yeah, yeah fantastic actor the whole making him the half brother thing um still appalled by because yeah they obviously yes. it was a harry potterization of of james bond that it was sort of let's yeah. let's make it a big family sort of soap opera really yeah absolutely and also because you're giving the act the, the bond character a bunch of motivation that the audience doesn't really share Mm, mm. that thing i was talking about them being like a video game avatar you're on their side because it's very clear what they you're not hurt by the fact that your father was the skiing was given was you were raised by the skiing instructor whose son was all, all this complicated stuff but to, then to establish blofeld and then immediately just waste him in the next film and kill him off was a really strange you know you've, you've got blofeld that's yeah. a, that's a good villain. You can use him as a villain, not just a guy in a cage who just then dies, you know. Yes, it's yeah. a very odd choice. There were so many odd choices. I remember Skyfall, that one of my the, the one that I thought was very, very funny was they got Albert Finney to replace who was it was supposed to be played by Sean Connery, the sort of yes. game, gameskeeper. Yes. And there's this reveal, and you and the reveal instead of being like it's Sean Connery, it was like oh, it who is that? Yeah. <laughs> David Hemmings or Alfred Albert Finney or <laughs> It would have been too weird, though, if Sean Connery had stepped into that film. Yeah, but it sort of speaks to the the, the mutability of the whole thing. The fact that you people forget that Judy Dench was M for mm. Pierce Brosnan, yeah, and then M again in Casino Royale when James Bond hasn't got his license to kill yet. Yeah, uh, in my head, this is my canon. Mm. All the Brosnan Brosnan films 
take place uh, after Quantum of Solace. Right, so it starts with Casino Royale. And okay. there's, there's Judy Dench's M. Uh, he gets the car. He gets the Alfa Romeo. Um, Alfa Romeo. Um, Aston Martin. I'm, yeah, it's blanking on that car name. My yeah, God, Aston I'm Martin. Casino. Yeah. I'm at that age where suddenly things go. Um, so he gets all that, and um, Quantum of Solace happened. You don't need Quantum of Solace, but there it is. And then afterwards, he's become. James Bond. And so you meet him in GoldenEye and he's driving, you know, the Aston Martin around Monte Carlo and he's gambling and he's being James Bond and he's loving being James Bond and all that sort of stuff. So it goes through his films till you get to um, the start of Die Another Day when he's captured and he's tortured for years in North Korea and he sort of, you know, escapes in it. And that explains why when you get to Skyfall, he's old and broken and and beaten and um and the shifting of all the cues from Robert Thuellen to John Cleese to um Ben Whishaw makes total sense if you look yeah. at it in these in these sort and it flows much better and it makes a lot more sense. The only problem is you have to believe that in the James Bond universe the name Money Penny is a bit more common than it is here because there's a few a few people called Money Penny or two people with the same name doing the same job. But if you can buy that, the whole arc makes much more sense. And it was it was odd that they went from um, you know, they, they establish, you know, Daniel Craig, he becomes James Bond, and he becomes James Bond at the end of that film. And then when, you know, uh, Skyfall happens, it's all him being old and no good. It's like they missed out the sort of you know, the glory years, the fun glory years. The, four, the um, 14 missions that he went yeah, on. Yeah, absolutely. Which is what you want, you know. You don't, you don't introduce Blofeld just to kill him off. You don't sort of establish James Bond just to have him as an dying old wreck. Um, but, yeah, so if you if you view them in that order, they make total sense. That's my that's, that's my that, canon anyway. That's my head canon. And, and I, I love the way that you're a little bit disturbed by a couple of people sharing the name Moneypenny, but not the fact that <laughs> Piers Brosnan, Daniel Craig, turns into Piers Brosnan and then back yeah. into Daniel Craig. That bit's yeah. fine. That bit's that's, what, that's what happens in films and yeah. TV. You know, yeah. suddenly people have different faces. That's just, I can accept that. That's easy. I, yeah. I, think with, I think with the Bond thing, the easiest way of dealing with all this is just whatever you're watching at any particular time, that's correct. Everything else you've, you've just remembered slightly wrong, but it all happened. But you've just remembered it slightly. So don't worry about it, inconsistencies well, on, like that. On Her Majesty's Secret Service, you know he has that you know famous line: "The this never happened to the other guy." That's right, the other and, fella, yeah. uh, and then he goes to his office and pulls out um, like a, a bunch of references to other mm, films, mm. and sort of does this huge nostalgic sort of. And Absolutely. it's just like, for the first time minute. as well. Yeah, there's yeah. nothing like that. And then the opening titles were like clips from the previous films and stuff like that. Yeah. It's odd. Yeah. It, it really is sort of like, forget this is the new guy, but also remember everything we've done and everything you've enjoyed. And this yeah. is going to be continuity as well. Yeah. You know. And then you get yeah. Roger Moore standing at the grave of his wife. Of yeah. His wife. And another um, Blofeld gets killed in a in a, a similarly sort of dismissive <laughs> way as well, dropped down a chimney as a. And that was that was that was the um, the serious reboots, you know. They were going back to you know Fleming sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. This will be much more serious, not not so fanciful. Uh, we'll just start by dropping 
Blofeld in a, in a wheelchair down a chimney from a helicopter. <laughs> Brilliant. Well done. Well done. You've got top, topples in there, so it's all going to be good. It's all going to come out in the wash. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, it's very easy to um, criticise um, things like the Bond films, and there's lots of good reasons to do so. But I think what's more interesting is the fact that despite all those things, there is something there that means that the films keep coming back and, and are always successful and we always watch them and we always go back to sort of sort of James Bond. Um, that's much harder to sort of pin down than this little sniping about, as I've been doing, sorry. No, um, no, absolutely. I feel exactly the same. I've I must have bought the DVDs at least three times, you know, and I've, you know, already said about buying the books a number of times. I've read them a few times. I've watched the films countless times Mm -hmm. and I I kind of know they're not 90% of it. They're not good novels and they're not good films. Yeah. 90% (laughs) of them. There's the occasional exception, but for some reason they are bigger than the, the yeah, whole, they're uh, more they're more important to you than some good films and some good novels, aren't they? Absolutely, they matter more, and yeah. that's that's what I think is interesting. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm sort of dealing with that as I said, I'm writing about Doctor Who at, mm. the, at the same time, which you know has exactly the same thing. You know, it can it it could um, be very easy to sort of criticise, but for the reason why it's still with us is much more important and much so, more relevant. So your Doctor Who is uh, Tom Baker, I'm guessing. Yeah. Tom right, Baker. same here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I, I, I um, I worked with Tom Baker about fifteen years ago. I used to mm. make uh, preschool programs for Channel Five, and we had him as a narrator. And so, I, 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 it's a story I tell in the book. It's um, it was one glorious day. I got to go to the pub with Tom Baker after a, wow. a sound session, and he went to the. It was a pub called the Yorkshire Grey in Soho. And it's a Sam Smith's pub. You know, how, how many weeks were you in there? <laughs> <laughs> he's not as he's not, he's not the he's not the drinker that he was right you know? right um in the 70s yeah he just just put a just put a pillow down there and he'd he'd, he'd be good but we went to the bar and we're talking about which drinks to get because they're it's not the normal drinks you get in sam smith but and it, so we're having that little conversation and i just looked up around the corner of the bar there was a guy who looked about my age and he was there at the bar with his, his pint of i think it was a lager and he just i just happened to look at him the moment that he looked up and saw tom baker sort of at, at the bar and i'll never i'll never forget the expression on his face because it wasn't um it wasn't like oh like a little smile oh there's that that guy off the telly or uh, there's a 1970s children's television actor or anything like that it was it was awe it was genuinely awe it was it was like he just stepped through the wardrobe and entered narnia mm. you know he was mm. in his normal everyday most mundane uh stand at the bar world and then suddenly he's not suddenly the sight of this this one actor transported him you know and i think about that expression an awful lot mm-hmm. just the, 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 there's a quality to these things that um film criticism or literary criticism or criticism in general sort of misses mm-hmm. you know the things that matter that that uh that, that, that 
shape us, really. Mm. They are part of our lives, and they're a beautiful, wonderful part of our lives um, that can't quite be described intellectually. Mm. They can't mm. quite be. They can, they can be rationalised, but it's it's not it's not rational. You know, it's um, uh, that's it's, important. That's what I think I'm trying to get uh, nailed, not nailed down, but trying to sort of celebrate. I think. Yeah. It, it sort of becomes part of our psychogeography. It becomes our psychic landscape is populated by these people. Yeah. And the these experiences. Yeah. 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 Definitely. That's that, that's wonderful, John. I, I, I've so much enjoyed the conversation, but I have to ask you one last question, which is mm. um, I always ask for a recommendation of a, a film book or a, okay. a book that has in some way either either you've just enjoyed or it's influenced you or you just you wish to recommend to our listeners to to uh, to get them um yeah to get them reading i mean the one that immediately jumped to mind when you said a film book was mm. david lynch's uh, room to dream mm. um, and it's not just david lynch i'm trying to think of the name of i can see it here it's christine mckenna Mc- I can see half the name. My name's Christine. It's it's he's co-written it with mm. another writer, and the way it works is it's it's basically a biography, but it's half autobiography and half biography written by this other uh, writer. So you get David Lynch's recollections of the period, and then a, a proper researcher going away and writing exactly what happened, and it's the best of both worlds. It, it's it's superbly done. It really is, and. Um, when you have such a, uh, a fascinating and um, inscrutable sort of filmmaker like David Lynch, um, it's the best way to to tell us. Do you need their perspective? Because mm. no one else has sees the world in the way that David Lynch does. Mm. But to, to marry that with um, you know context and, and accuracy and all, all, all the great sort of things. Brilliant book. Room to yeah. Dream. Love it. Yeah. yeah Chris, Christine McKenna is the, is the co-author. Yes. yes. Um, Thank you. I, I, I would further recommend anybody who hasn't read it to maybe even try the audio version, the Audible. It's on Audible, I, I think. Heard, yes, I'm not, I haven't heard the audio version. But because the, because it, David Lynch does his own sections. Each author... Yeah. Uh, does their own sections and David Lynch's sections are just because he reads them out in obviously David Lynch's voice (laughs) very occasionally loses his temper like when he's describing school and and he just goes it was a waste of my fucking time (laughs) it sounds genuinely angry when he gets down to it Um, oh superb yeah yeah brilliant brilliant recommendation uh and uh love and let love and let die Yo, no, that is it. Love yeah. and Let Die. Yeah. yeah, it's been in my head so long as Love and Let Die. I forgot that Live and Let Die is the name of the podcast. Oh, God, tell me about it. I so have that problem. You've been living with it, I, I imagine, <laughs> for quite some time. Uh, it's a brilliant uh, a brilliant read and uh, highly recommended. And uh, also the William Blake book, which is called William Blake versus the World. The world, yeah. William Blake versus the World. Anybody who who is curious, that's uh, that's also you know it's obviously not uh, on film as such mm-hmm. but uh there's yeah is there a poet more cinematic than william blake i wonder uh brilliant john thanks so much a real pleasure talking to you john thanks for having me
when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.